Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, it's good to see you guys this morning. Welcome. Uh, thank you for being here at Antioch. My name is Nathan, and I'm one of our leaders, and it's my pleasure to get to open God's word with you this morning and wrestle through this story. Uh, I should also say happy holidays, by the way, right? Because we, just this last week, really, we turned that corner that we turn every year where, where we move from knowing that the holidays are coming uh, to actually finally being like in the holidays. Let me just ask, how many of you guys already have lights up on your houses? Yeah. Anyone get their Christmas tree? Yeah. A few of you? Yeah. Good job. We are in it. We are in it. Uh, I was driving to the office Friday morning after Thanksgiving, and, uh, and already Christmas music is in full swing on the radio. Uh, and I have to also say this wasn't the first time for me this year that I was baptized in the sounds of joyful holiday merriment, because uh, if you've been in our offices, you may know that my office is closest to Kip's office, and if you didn't know this about Kip, he starts playing Christmas music in October (laughs) for all of our joy. Uh, So we're back in it, right? We're back in the Christmas season, and the reality is that for the next month, everywhere we go, we are going to see it, and we are going to hear it, and we are going to feel this Christmas stuff, right? Which for, this is fun, but if we're honest, like for us as, as Christians, right? And wanting to live into the, the historic Christian faith, this actually presents a bit of a problem for us. Because, I'll say it this way, to the degree that we live prematurely into Christmas, that is the degree to which we neglect the advent, to the degree that we prematurely live into Christmas is the degree to which we neglect the Advent. Now, Advent is a season in the church calendar that you might be familiar with, especially uh, if you grew up around church. Advent represents the four weeks that lead us up to Christmas. But here's the thing. Advent is not Christmas. They're not the same Thing And when we fail to distinguish between these two seasons, between the Advent and the Christmas, the, re- the reality is the Advent is the one that gets missed. And so some folks, they use Advent really just sort of as an excuse to basically stretch Christmas forward. You know what I'm talking about? So that we get like a, a whole month to celebrate Christmas instead of just a day or a week. And while I appreciate that sentiment, everyone appreciates the idea of a longer, better Christmas season, the truth is Advent is something much, much different. And Advent is a season that should have a very different posture to it. The truth is, we're not very good at Advent anymore. And I think it's largely cultural. Because more than anything, Advent is this. It's a season of waiting. It's a season, uh, it represents the season of waiting that led up to the birth of Jesus. The coming of the Messiah. And waiting is not a virtue of our culture, is it? Right? Think of Amazon Prime. <laughs> like, when is the last time you waited more than 48 hours for anything, right? We don't. We don't. It's not, it's not a virtue. And so, um, 
In wrestling with this idea of Advent, I was trying to think up a metaphor, and, and the best one I could come up with is actually pregnancy, okay? Pregnancy. So uh, I would say it this way. Advent is to Christmas what pregnancy is to childbirth. This is also what happens when you're married to a midwife. Uh, it's like everything in your mind, you're always thinking like pregnancy, babies, whatever. Pregnancy is, it's, it's beautiful, right? It's, it's powerful. It's also brutally hard, right? Brutally difficult. It's long. It's exhausting. But it's necessary, isn't it? Like, uh, you, you don't just get to skip right to sort of the blissful baby. You've got you've to suffer through. Like someone has to, has to carry it for hopefully nine months. And so uh, if, if Christmas is the joy and the celebration of childbirth, to stick with this, this metaphor, then Advent is the nine months of heartburn, right? Advent is like the, the, the sore back and Advent is the, the morning sickness. It's the fatigue and the exhaustion and the stretch marks and like the, the total disorientation of not being able to recognize your body anymore, right? This is... This is Advent. It's not, it's not a season of light and happiness. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. Advent is the darkness that precedes the light. Advent is the discomfort. It's the, the waiting and the wondering. Like, is this baby ever going to come? That's Advent. I laughed this week because as I was wrestling with this content, my wife got a text message from one of her clients and uh, the text message, she said, I have accepted the fact that I am going to be pregnant forever. <laughs> uh, which was funny, it also incredibly timely. That's a picture of the Advent. And the beginning of our scripture this morning that Crystal just read for us, um, the scripture opens with this phrase. It says, in those days, in those days. Now, this was a loaded phrase. Okay? Because those days, those days, they weren't particularly happy days. You see, those days referred to this period of, of time of darkness. One of the, the periods of probably greatest discomfort in the history of Israel. For those of you that have been around, you know that for the last month or so, we've been hearing uh, from our lead pastor, from Pete, as he unpacked his experience of this three-week silent retreat uh, that he had in, in the cabin. And man, in three of what I would deem to be probably the most honest and courageous sermons I have ever heard in my life, uh, Pete brought us in on this season of wrestling with God. He talked about struggling with this feeling of feeling completely disappointed with God. Feeling like, like he showed up, but God never showed up. God never spoke. And, and Pete was left feeling completely alone, right? It was this really heavy, really hard place to be. Now I bring that up because that is almost the exact same experience that the nation of Israel was going through as, as we get to this passage, okay? wrestling with the disappointment with God. Is he ever going to show up? Except instead of, instead of their experience being silence and, and distance from God that lasted three weeks, for Israel, it had lasted for over 400 years. For 400 years, 
They'd been living in that place of darkness and silence. Now, we know this, historically, it's referred to as the intertestamental period, uh, or it's also commonly referred to as the 400 years of silence. But in case you're unfamiliar with that history, here's what happened. Um, God had been begging and pleading with the nation of Israel and speaking to them through the prophets and through other divine forms of communication. He'd been begging and pleading with the nation of Israel to repent and to follow him, okay? And they just like never did. <laughs> and so eventually God stopped talking to them altogether. Silence. And so our Old Testament, our Old Testament concludes with the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi, who's one of the, the very last prophetic voices that was speaking to the nation of Israel on God's behalf. And, and Malachi shares some really bold, really powerful words with us in his book. He, he foretells of this messenger who is going to come and prepare the way for the Lord, prepare the way for the Messiah. And then he says, and shortly after this messenger, the Messiah is going to show up. Okay. And then he, he says this, if you jump to chapter four, verses five and six. God says this through Malachi. He says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Full stop. That's the end. And those are, those are literally the final words of our Old Testament. The book's over. It's done. That's, that's the end. Then God stops talking. Silence. For 400 years. For 400 years, nothing. Not a prophet, not an angel, nothing. That's a long time, isn't it? For our own uh, reference... 400 years ago, the pilgrims hadn't landed at Plymouth Rock yet, <laughs> okay? There's a lot that's happened since then, isn't there, right? 400 years. And so Israel finds themselves, they're 400 years into this waiting game and nothing has happened. And they've been living in darkness and silence and disappointment, wondering if God was ever gonna make good. Wondering, is this Messiah even ever gonna actually show up? Right, back to, our, back to our metaphor, wondering, is this baby ever going to be born? Or are we going to be pregnant forever? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been, it's kind of a personal question, so don't raise your hands. Uh, have you ever been stood up on a date before? Or maybe like for a dinner party or something? Have you ever been stood up? How long, how long would you wait before you just gave up on that person? How long do you wait? Like, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes? Maybe an hour? I don't know, two hours tops? That seems like, like it's pushing it, right? How, how do you feel in that moment? Like in those minutes, as they're ticking by, as the hours creep along, how are you feeling? Right? Hey, you feeling? Am I worthless? Am I completely forgotten? Do I even matter. Guys, that is the setting for the New Testament. And that tension, that discomfort is, I would argue, the, the true experience of Advent. 
It's a season of waiting, sure. Also, waiting isn't strong enough language to describe it. This is, this is anticipatory longing. There's a desperation here. This is desperate waiting. This is a, a, a wandering in the dark. It's, it's, it's wondering if this God is going to be silent forever, if he's ever going to show up. Wondering, is he even good? Does he even love us? Has he forgotten us? Right? That's heavy. This is heavy. And this is not our typical experience of Advent, is it? <laughs> no. No. It's not. Why? Because we really just want five weeks of Christmas. We want the celebration, not the, the tension. We like the cuter version, right? The, the milder or we could say domesticated version of Advent. We like uh, the, um, you guys know the little Advent calendars, right? With like you open the window and there's the chocolate and whatever, a Bible verse every day. Like that's what we want. <laughs> we want John 3.16 and a Tootsie Roll. <laughs> we don't, that sounds much better. That sounds much better than, than this. It sounds a whole lot cleaner than the wrestle that Advent invites us into where our hearts are crying out, God, we're waiting and we're incredibly uncomfortable. Are you ever going to show? There's this author and theologian, her name's Fleming Rutledge, and she has been incredibly helpful for me this week as I've been wrestling with Advent, and particularly the character of John the Baptist. She says this, Advent encroaches upon us in an uncomfortable way, making us feel somewhat out of sorts with its stubborn resistance to anything remotely resembling the season of shopping and decorating and wrapping and partying. <laughs> and so this is the setting. This is the setting for our passage today. This is the scene onto which John the Baptist first emerges. Centuries of the uncomfortable, desperate waiting, and then this guy bursts onto the scene. And what's funny is that in many ways, he actually brings even more discomfort and awkwardness to an already really difficult situation. See, John the Baptist uh, shows up and, and he's fully embodying this tension. He's fully embodying the total weirdness and disorientation of the season. We could actually say it this way, that John the Baptist is the Advent personified. He's the Advent personified, or as theologian Paula Gooder states, John is the epitome of Advent, a figure in whom the past and future meet in an explosive message for the present. John may be called to waiting, but his waiting can hardly be called passive. John's is an abrasive, disruptive, unsettling waiting, a waiting that is about as active as it's possible to be. And so all of a sudden, we're met with this really, it's sort of a funny juxtaposition, right? Because, uh, because we want an Advent that looks something like uh, the sweet little baby, right? We want the sweet baby Jesus that's cute and, and, and lying in a manger. Like, that's the picture that comes to our minds when we envision the Advent. But in truth, the actual face of the Advent looks very different. It looks like this figure uh, who just walked out of the wilderness wearing the remains of a camel and eating bugs. <laughs> That's the face of the Advent, and it's abrasive, isn't it? 
It's, it's, it's disruptive. You could argue it's even a bit uh, uh, offensive. And that's just, that's just John the Baptist's appearance, right? Uh, tell you what, his message is no less upsetting. His message is no less upsetting. He shows up, and what does he say? Repent. Repent is his message. Confess your sins and be baptized. We have to prepare the way for the Lord, and you guys aren't ready yet. And that's just his message to the crowds. Like, that's just to the general population. You get to his message to the religious leaders and, like, political leaders, the influential people of the day, it's even stronger. It's even more offensive. What does he say to them? He says, you brood of vipers. If you didn't know, snakes are not thought of very kindly in the scriptures, right? What is he saying here? You agents of Satan, watch out for God's wrath. That's his message. And then perhaps his boldest claim of all, he says, the ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. <laughs> Whoa, dude, right? This is heavy stuff. What's he saying here? He's saying this whole fake religious system that you guys have, have built, this whole empire, it's coming down and it's destined for the fire, right? The ax is already at the root of this tree. So this, by the way, uh, is where we got our title for this Advent sermon series, right? We're calling it The Axe and the Root, which is kind of shocking. <laughs> it's a little bit uh, of an upsetting message, but it's a powerful one nonetheless, isn't it? And I love the imagery of it. I love the, the, the prophetic imagery here, especially, especially in light of how we typically decorate for Advent, right? So notice like instead of uh, a Christmas tree, we have a dead stump, um, which might have been a Christmas tree at one point. I don't know. Uh, it's definitely not anymore. And instead of like having lovely wrapped presents and gifts around the bottom of it, we've got an axe buried in the wood, right? That's, it's a powerful image. It's not very Christmassy, is it? No. No, but it is so thoroughly Advent. It's Advent. I had suggested uh, to our staff team that it might be cool if we made some Advent calendars for the kids, like back in uh, Antioch kids, but like instead of opening the window and then seeing the happy baby Jesus saying, I love you or whatever, or like uh, the angels saying, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Um, it'd be like a picture of a madman wielding an ax and screaming, repent, <laughs> right? Linda didn't love the idea. Um, and that's also why I'm not a children's pastor. <laughs> uh, how you guys doing with all this, by the way? It's heavy, right? Have I ruined the advent for you? <laughs> Am I bah humbugging all of your holiday joy? So, I hope not. Uh, if so, I'm sorry. Also, if so, like, we're in this together, right? And not just us. We're in it with this dude, John the Baptist. This totally weird, eccentric, 
dude that, that nobody is entirely sure what to do with. And so he's a guy that's often ignored because he's really confusing. But because this guy, John, is the voice of the Advent, we're going to spend the next four weeks taking a good, hard look at his life and his ministry. And, and I think we've got a lot to learn from him, a lot that we can learn from, from this man. You know, John the Baptist is probably, he's probably one of the most misunderstood and one of the most confusing uh, people in the whole Bible. And there's a lot about him that, that's uh, still a total mystery, but there is no question at all that he is absolutely essential to the story. John is essential to God's plan of redemption. Again, Fleming Rutledge says this, John is on the frontier of the ages as God arrives in his world to turn it away from its past of sin and bondage toward a future of promise and freedom. John's function is to proclaim the coming reversal of the downward spiral of human history, to deliver the message of the invading Son of God. The whole purpose of John the Baptist is to announce the beginning of the end. She goes on to say, all four New Testament evangelists, this is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? all four New Testament evangelists agree, there is no good news. There is no gospel of Jesus Christ without John the Baptist. That's a powerful statement. John the Baptist is a unique guy. He's a unique guy. You know, he's, uh, he's looked at as the, the sole character in, in the, all of the scriptures, aside from God himself, that straddles the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the only one living into, into that space with a foot sort of planted in both worlds. And so he's simultaneously thought of by many to be the last of the Old Testament prophets. Also, he's the very first Christian. He's straddling this gap. Furthermore, uh, in addition to being prophesied about multiple times in the Old Testament, right, in the uh, books of Isaiah and Malachi and others, John the Baptist is also referred to over 90 times in the New Testament. 90 times, okay? There are only three people in the entire New Testament that show up more than John the Baptist. Jesus, okay? Paul, who wrote like half of it, <laughs> so that's cheating, uh, and then Peter, other than those guys, John the Baptist is the dominant player in the New Testament, right? He is vital to the story. And so we're going to take a good look at him. We're going to look at these different uh, aspects of, of his person, his character, his life, and ministry in the coming weeks. Today is just an introduction to him. And so um, with the time that we have left, I'm just going to share one thing. One thing that I find to be most compelling about John the Baptist, and that is this. What's most compelling about John the Baptist to me is what he shows and what he reveals to us about Jesus. What he reveals to us about Jesus. You know, I think that in the same way we talked about it, I think in the same way that we tend to domesticate the advent, right? We try to make it like just cute and mild. I think uh, we also tend to domesticate Jesus. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Like, I, I think that we like, I think that in general, people like 
the Jesus that heals the sick, right? Like we're huge fans of the Jesus that, you know, feeds the hungry. <laughs> Everyone loves the Jesus that brings 130 gallons of better wine to the party, right? Like everyone loves that, that Jesus. We even love the Jesus that like sticks it to the man, right? That, that calls out corruption and condemns uh, the, the, the leaders, right? The, the guy that upsets societal norms and speaks truth to people in power. We like that Jesus. But I think we're a lot less comfortable. I might even say I'm not sure that we like the Jesus that confronts our personal problem of sin. I'm, I'm unconvinced that we really like this picture of, of Jesus as the ultimate judge of all of the living and the dead. I don't think that we like the Jesus who speaks to the reality of hell and condemnation. I also think we're really uncomfortable with the Jesus who challenges the rich man to sell all that he has and give it to the poor, right? We like a comforting Jesus. We like the comfortable Jesus who keeps us warm and well-fed. We don't care for the confrontational Jesus who calls us out. And as such, we tend to pick and choose, and what we wind up with is, is an incredibly lopsided Savior. A lopsided Savior. John the Baptist, however, does not leave us with that option. John the Baptist presents us with the real Jesus. The whole Jesus. Once again, to quote Rutledge, why do all four evangelists introduce their gospels with John the Baptist? What is the purpose of making everyone's hair stand on end during Advent? It has occurred to me that the image of Jesus as the cosmic judge who will ultimately come again and put an end to all sin and wickedness forever is not so frightening to the poor and oppressed of the earth as it is to those who have a lot to lose. John the Baptist doesn't permit an unbalanced view of Jesus. He brings us the whole Jesus. <laughs> he bears witness to the Jesus that is both the, 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 the gentle, merciful lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and also the Jesus who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, the Jesus whose winnowing fork is in hand and is clearing the, fleshy, the, the, the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So if we take John seriously, we can't water down Jesus. We can't do it. We don't get to pick and choose the parts we like. We either get the real Jesus, all of him, or we get none of him. And as we read John the Baptist's story, as we wrestle through these different gospel accounts, we find out very, very quickly uh, what John thinks about Jesus. We find out very quickly who this, this Jesus is through John's eyes. But that, for me, begs then another question. And the question is this, we know, we know what John thinks of Jesus, so what does Jesus think of John, right? 
What does Jesus think of John? Like, is he too weird? Is he too out there? Is his message too bold? Is it too shocking, too upsetting? Is he just too strange? What does Jesus think about John? He tells us later in Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What does Jesus think of him? Jesus thinks really highly of him. (laughs) He thinks really highly of him. But here's what I find most fascinating about this, most interesting. You guys have heard the the, uh, saying, the the adage that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? Or the highest form of praise, imitation. Um, In the church, our process of discipleship is often, um, we often talk about it as the process of becoming increasingly Christ-like, right? So questions like, what would Jesus do? Um, is a valid question, a good one. Like, how can we become more like him? How can we love people more like Jesus did, etc.? Here's the fascinating thing about John the Baptist, okay? John was Christ-like, yes. But I think even more accurately, we could say that Jesus was John-like. Stick with me. Jesus was John-like. The parallels that exist between the lives of these two men are incredible. There are dozens of them, dozens and dozens. But here's the deal. In all of them, it was John that came first. John came first. I'm going to share just a couple of these parallels with you to to paint the picture. Both Jesus and John had these incredible, miraculous birth narratives in which like angels appeared and declared who these men were going to be someday. That doesn't happen very often. It happened for both of them. Secondly, as we look at, at John's life, we see that John, John came out of the wilderness and he began his ministry of preaching and baptizing, okay? So Jesus gets baptized, then heads into the wilderness before beginning his ministry of preaching and baptizing. And it's not only like their, their road to ministry that was similar, it was the actual ministry, like, like the actual message, the actual gospel that they presented, Okay? John's gospel was this, Matthew 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus' gospel, next chapter, 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. (laughs) It's the same gospel. It's the same, Jesus is preaching John's sermon, (laughs) right? It's the same, verbatim, verbatim. Multiple times in these guys' lives, they are mistaken for one another. Uh, In Matthew 16, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and he says, "Uh, who do people think that I am? Who are they saying that I am? And they're like, yeah, mostly people think you're John the Baptist. They're mistaken for one another. Additionally, their crew that they ran with, like their entourage, um, shockingly similar. Both of these guys surround themselves with who? With the down and outs with sinners and and prostitutes and tax collectors, those are their people. Those are their disciples, which was incredibly upsetting to the religious leaders watching this all go down. And then finally, both of these men are martyred. 
both of them killed for upsetting the socio-political religious norms of their day. There's a lot of parallels here, isn't there? But in every single one of these things, John led the way. John did it first. And then, then came Jesus. And I find this really fascinating. Like There are uh, many people throughout history of, of whom we can say, yeah, that person was Christ-like, right? That person reminds me of Jesus. But for how many people can we say that Jesus was them-like? I think John the Baptist. We've got maybe, I don't know, he might be the only one. <laughs> Uh, and that's fascinating to me. And yet for all their similarities, for all that they shared in common, uh, there is one important distinction, right? One important distinguisher. And while they were both prophetic, while they were both uh, powerful, humble, godly leaders, the truth is only one of them was our Savior. Only one was Lord, and the other simply spent his life pointing to him. And so it's interesting, this, in, in a stroke of kind of tragic irony, uh, the axe that John declared is already at the root, right, winds up getting turned back on him at his death. He's beheaded uh, in Herod's palace, but while both Jesus and John would be executed unjustly, only one's death would serve as the payment for our sin. Only one's death brought about reconciliation. John gave his life in service of God. Jesus gave his life serving God, but in a very real way gave his life in service of us. John calls us to repentance. Jesus made that repentance and our forgiveness possible. John spent his whole life pointing everyone that he came in contact with toward Jesus. And, and as such, he was incredible. He was an incredible messenger and evangelist. The guy's the voice of the advent. Jesus is Lord, Savior, Messiah. And so here's my challenge for us um, as we continue to wrestle with his life and we walk through the Advent season. Um, I'll say it this way. Let, let John be John. <laughs> let him be a bold example to you. I'll be a difficult one and a super weird one. Uh, but let John be John. Embrace his weirdness. Let him mess with your holidays, okay? Look at him. Learn from him. See him. Let John be John. But more importantly, let Jesus be your Savior. Let John be John. Let Jesus be Lord. I'm going to share with you one final scripture. This is from the evangelist John, not the Baptist John, um, the gospel writer. And this is how he 
introduces us to these two characters. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. But he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world and to all who would receive him. To those who would believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus that we love, the light of the world, our Lord and Savior forever. And, and this is the Jesus that we remember as we come to the table every week, as we feast, right? And, and this is a table, the, the, the communion tables around the room are, are tables that John would have been stoked on. John would, would happily encourage us to come and feast at this table. At this table is a feast of, of repentance and belief and faith, but it is Jesus who makes it possible. It is Jesus whom we meet as we partake. So friends, sinners, Dearly beloved children of God, because Jesus has made us so. Feast today. And let's worship this Jesus together. Amen? Amen. If you're able, would you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. God, your goodness and love and grace is profound. And, um, and we don't take it for granted. And God, the reality of Advent is heavy. Would you use it to create in us, uh, foster a sense of gratitude and, and love and anticipation uh, for the hope and the joy and the life that we find only in Jesus. We're thankful for this super weird guy, John the Baptist, that we're still not totally sure what to do with. We're thankful for the way that his life reflected the glory of our Savior and pointed us to the fulfillment that we would find in Christ. And we're thankful for the good news of your gospel, the Jesus who came, who lived, uh, who died, who was buried, who rose again, who ascended and is reigning on high as our Lord who's coming again one day at the next advent to reconcile all things. We're thankful for the hope that we have in this gospel. I pray that your gospel this morning would sink uh, even deeper into our lives and hearts and that by your spirit, uh, you would begin to awaken the dead in us. God, you gently call us to repentance and to belief. And I pray that you would accomplish those things in our hearts this morning. So we love you. God, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.